Welcome to episode 114 of the Political Mike podcast. A resounding chorus of voices echoes across Ohio, where voters have once again made their stance clear in a major rebuke against Republicans over the fiercely contested terrain of abortion rights. In a groundbreaking referendum, the battle lines were drawn, and Ohioans resoundingly rejected a GOP-led effort that aimed to reshape the state's constitution. An astounding 62% of Ohioans cast their votes against issue one, effectively slamming the door on an attempt to raise the bar for constitutional amendments. Tonight, we're going to dissect the repercussions of this monumental decision, exploring how it could send ripples through the political landscape and redefine the discourse around reproductive rights. The Associated Press had barely announced the results when the world took notice, and we're here to break down the story behind the numbers. But that's not all. Brace yourselves for a dive into the intriguing web of legal battles and courtroom drama, where former President Donald J. Trump finds himself once again at the center of attention. With an air of anticipation, we explore the potential consequences of a court-ordered muzzle that could loom over President Trump, a dynamic force in the GOP. What prompted prosecutors to raise their eyebrows and call for evidence to be kept under wraps? Join us as we entangle the enigma and dissect the implications of Trump's statements, leaving no stone unturned. And as if the drama weren't intense enough, we pivot to the realm of politics in Florida, where Governor Ron DeSantis, who is currently running for the GOP nomination for 2024, has made a striking move that raises eyebrows and questions alike. DeSantis has once again wielded his authority to remove an elected Florida prosecutor from office, sparking debates about criminal justice and public safety. But wait, there's more. GOP presidential candidate Nikki Haley enters the fray, casting a spotlight on a months-long hold on military promotions that's raising concerns about the nation's commitment to its armed forces. Get ready for an episode packed with revelations, insights, analysis that will leave you hanging on to every word. This is episode 114 of The Political Mic, and tonight I'm glad to be joined with Professor Fred Cook, government relations attorney, currently an adjunct professor at Howard University School of Law. Good to see you, Professor. Thanks for being back on. Uh, Nate Honore, who's also a friend of The Political Mic podcast, is back on tonight. Uh, of course, a graduate of Quinnipiac University School of Law and active in Connecticut politics. The host of the Saving Elephants podcast, Josh Lewis, is back on The Political Mic tonight. And for the first time, we have uh, Mr. Eric Cohn, the podcast producer for the Action Institute. Good to have you, Mr. Cohn. We, we have Zach Tolan, who always adds a wealth of knowledge to the, the program as well. So I'm grateful to have this panel. I want to start off the conversation by asking you, gentlemen. Of course, Ohio's rejected issue one. Uh, this was a GOP-led measure that was aimed to alter the state's constitution. Um, in your view, what were the key factors that motivated voters to overwhelmingly turn down this proposal? And could we potentially see implications for next year? Well, it- I just want to quickly point out that this technically, it was not a, this was not the referendum on abortion. This was a referendum on changing the uh, uh, threshold to amend the constitution in the state of Ohio. So before anyone gets too excited about what this means for uh, Ohioans uh, opinions on abortion specifically, there are many people for many reasons who may have wanted to vote against this, particularly if you are an Ohio citizen, uh, this, uh, you know, measures stood to strip you of a lot of power uh, related to your own state. It would have completely uh, changed the ability to uh, amend your own state constitution. And uh, I, I do think it's, you know, obviously the main, the major thing that led to all of this was uh, uh, the pending amendment to uh, uh, enshrine abortion rights within the state. But uh, I think it is also important to keep in mind that uh, at base, this particular uh, uh, issue was whether or not to change the the threshold for amending the constitution. So there would be many people 
uh, even if uh, abortion wasn't such a, an important issue or different kind of issue for them, might have uh, balked at uh, voting in favor of this particular measure. Yeah, I think I agree with Zach in large part. I, I think that the effort on the part of the Republican Party in Ohio, and, and I'm not in Ohio, so I, I didn't follow it as, as intensely as I might have had I been a resident of Ohio, was so transparently aimed at taking away from citizens what they perceived to be rights that they had to govern themselves, that is to decide what their constitution looked like or not. Ohio has had a history of amending its constitution. They've had a history of the amendments to the constitution happening by relatively close votes, that is to say not 60% plus. And the citizens, I think, believed that this was taking something away from them for not a good reason. And, and it ties back to the abortion piece because really the Republicans at the end of the day admitted that this was designed to get ahead of the vote uh, on abortion amendment uh, uh, into the constitution of Ohio. And so I think people just thought this was um, a kind of a, a bait and switch thing, a, ch a changing of the rules in a kind of fundamental and wrong way. And I, as I said, I think that whether you were really pro or con on the abortion issue, it was really more fundamental to this is corrupt. This, this, these are people taking from us our ability to govern ourselves and to have their view of the world imposed on us because they, they just they just think they can I think one of the things, of course, tempting us to look at this as a referendum on abortion or pro-life is that this is one of many battles that have taken place in states, in, in, in which case they were very more directly about abortion and went, and to the best of my knowledge, in all cases, um, went more towards the pro-choice side than the pro-life side. There, there could be some exceptions, but to the best of my knowledge, that's, that's where most of these cases are going. But I do take your point, Zach uh, and Fred, and I think it's a good one that I, I don't think we really know in the minds and the hearts of the average voter in Ohio, or were they focused on abortion or was this more stripping us of, of our perceived rights? Um, for myself, I'm actually, if, if we take the abortion issue out of this completely, Ohio has a 50%, if I'm not mistaken, to pass a constitutional amendment. I mean, that, that seems nuts to me. Um, and, and maybe they just see it different in Ohio. Uh, I am for taking out, if, if I can put it this way, taking out some more of the small d democracy out of our constitutions across states, um, because I think that th there is a real value in having certain aspects of your founding documents that don't change easily just with the whims of the masses. Um, but it, it's kind of hard to even have that conversation because it's like, well, what are we talking about? Are we talking about abortion or are we talking about um, what is the pro proper structuring of a state's constitution? And it's really messy. I don't, it's, it's a little bit of each. Yeah, I think for for me, I was tracking largely with what Fred was saying until the, the very end. But this is where I think you get to the problem of the close correlation of what we saw Ohio voters vote on and the abortion issue. I'm largely with Josh on this. I am not a fan of uh, making it very easy to change something like a constitution. There's a reason at the uh, federal level it is incredibly difficult to change the constitution because you want to have a whole lot of consensus, not just amongst legislate, legislative bodies, but amongst the states themselves. State constitutions are of course different because we're talking about only one individual state, but I am generally in favor of the kind of thing, if you're changing like the governing document, the basic 
governing document of the state. I don't think 60% is an outrageous thing to ask that you have that many people in favor of the kind of change that you're making. The problem comes in, and this is a much larger problem for people who are on the right and people who are pro-life, um, and I am pro-life, is we spent so long focused on the legal angle of the abortion question of Roe v. Wade. And there's a whole lot of people within the pro-life coalition that we should recognize that there are disparate parts of it. There are people who are opposed to Roe v. Wade because they were pro-life and because of what Roe v. Wade did in terms of the law. There were people who are opposed to Roe v. Wade also because it was bad constitutional law. Even Ruth Bader Ginsburg admitted that in terms of a constitutional decision, uh, it had major problems. And you're seeing those things start to fray right now. And the problem that the pro-life side has had is because they were so engaged on the legal end of things, the actual communication to regular citizens did not happen in very effective ways. And I think they, uh, they are dealing with that problem right now. Uh, I've been recommending to pro-life groups and in the work that I had been doing prior to getting to the Acton Institute when I did political consulting, Start your messaging now and telling people that the overturning of Roe v. Wade doesn't make abortion illegal everywhere. There was a large misconception that just overturning Roe v. Wade would do that. It just returned the issue to the states. But because there was no real campaigns mounted around that and everything was geared towards the legal side of things, well, now they won that battle. We won that battle. And now we're having to deal with another battle that pro-lifers seem to be largely unprepared for. I, I, I guess I would disagree about Justice Ginsburg. Her, 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 her truck with the Roe v. Wade decision was the wrong constitutional provision was utilized to justify it, as opposed to it not being sound constitutional law. No, 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 no. No, she, her, her comment on it was that it took something out of the political process that should have been left to the political process. Um, I, I don't have her words in front of me. I'm happy to Google them while we're uh, while we're talking here. But that was her primary gripe about it was that it removed something from the political process that was still working through. Uh, well, I, I, you know, I don't I don't have an encyclopedia of Ruth Bader Ginsburg quotes in front of me, so I can't say at some point she never said this, that, or the other. But I but I do know that one of her statements in time was. Not that it was a wrong constitutional decision, constitutional law decision, that it was decided on the wrong legal principle from her perspective. Now, she may have said a bunch of other things, too, but, but I know she said that. In terms of the abortion debate in Ohio, though, it's important to remember that Ohio had what was effectively a six-week trigger ban that would go into effect as soon as uh, were Roe ever to be overturned. Um, this was, of course, signed into law by uh, former Governor Kasich before uh, the end of his, his tenure as the governor of that state. And the six-week abortion ban is effectively a total ban because most people don't, are not aware of that they're pregnant at six weeks. Um, now, currently, that ban is on hold while the courts continue to review it. But, uh, you know, raising the threshold for a constitutional amendment to 60% um, would have dramatically heightened the stakes both on the, you know, pro-choice and anti-choice side in terms of getting uh, abortion rights enshrined into the Constitution. Well, let's also not forget that uh, the Ohio, uh, what was it, Prop 1, uh, it, it, apart from also raising the, the threshold of 60%, it also would have required signatures from all 88 counties uh, as opposed to, basically, it was asking for consensus before even the vote. Uh, that's you know, 
pretty high bar to hit, and it was only in this case uh, put forward to try to stop, uh, you know, the uh, the enshrinement of abortion rights within the Constitution. So, uh, again, I think a lot of this had to do with just how how undemocratic this particular motion would have been. I, to be perfectly honest, I'm also rather in favor of higher bars for constitutional amendments. If it's too too small, you can't have issues with uh, just mere majority rule as opposed to trying to get something that's a bit more, uh, can pass a bit more muster. Uh, but that again, that doesn't require basically already unanimity in making a move before you can even consider making a move to get 60% to approve that move. So uh, there were a lot of issues with this whole thing. You know, most of the citizen-led ballot measures in Ohio historically have failed. Many are looking to what took place in not just Ohio, but Kansas, right? A deeply Republican state, two Republican senators, a Republican governor. Uh, and they're saying, well, the, the Dobbs decision is going to continue to be a major factor as we're heading into the presidential cycle, presidential election cycle. Ohio, of course, is a purple state. You know, they have Sherrod Brown as the senator, which I guess now qualif still qualifies it a as a purple state, even though you have Mike DeWine as the governor and you have, you know, the newly elected Republican senator, the, the one person that Trump endorsed that made it. What implications do you think that this has, uh, this decision has for 2024 moving forward? Do you think that this is going to be some a factor that motivates folks to get out to the polls? This seems like it's going to be a very heavily issues election as i think 2020 was there may be some people on this panel that have uh, better insight than i do but my initial thought is i don't know and i don't know in part because i know we've gone through an election cycle a non-presidential election cycle where we have put this to the test we've not yet gone through a presidential election cycle and in reality what we what dobbs did was blow the cap off of half of a century of us not having these deliberative legislative battles and so it, this is really uncharted territory. And I, I don't know to what degree the personalities of our presumably Biden and Trump, and who knows, it could be two completely different characters, uh, what those personalities, to what degree they're going to overshadow issues like this, because that certainly could happen. It does certainly appear for the time being that this has energized the left much more than it has the right. If anything, and, and I, I agree with what Eric was saying, there's this sense of, oh crap, what do we do now? And, and sort of the, now we're fighting amongst ourselves. I also am pro-life. I haven't had a conversation with Eric about what exactly that means for him. It's entirely possible he and I have really sharp disagreements on that. And we're seeing that all over the right, whereas the left seems to be far more uni unified. So I, I guess my, my short answer, just to, just to sum all that up, is I don't know because this is so new. I'll be a little more declarative than Josh about uh, projecting forward from our current moment in the primaries, which is if we are to assume that what is right now the most likely outcome of those two primaries in that the nominees in 2024 are Donald Trump and Joe Biden. No, we are not going to be talking a whole lot about abortion. We are going to be talking a whole lot about Donald Trump and the history of Donald Trump and Joe Biden and the history of Joe Biden. And it is going to become a battle of personalities and it is going to be a replay of the 2020 election. 
um, which I guess I'll disagree with you slightly, Mike, that I don't think that election had a whole lot to do about policy. I don't think it had a whole lot to do about issues. It was primarily a referendum on the incumbent and whether or not people wanted Donald Trump back in there. And uh, I think we got a, despite, again, the Electoral College being uh, more narrow and they're uh, just being by tens of thousands of votes in a couple of states, uh, at the end of the day, a pretty stinging rebuke to the idea of Donald Trump being president again. If we're going to have a rematch of that, it is just going to be about those two people. Um, we, we're going to continue, I think, to see these kinds of state-based abortion battles play out. Um, and, and this is where, like I said, Josh and I haven't talked about this, but you know, I, I have my own opinions. But largely the consensus of, of Americans, I, I think, is they want abortion to be legal and trimesters are a made-up thing anyway. Um, they want it to be illegal, illegal or legal in the first trimester. They get more squeamish, but are still generally open in the second trimester. And by the third trimester, most people want it illegal. The problem is arriving at that consensus opinion amongst 50 states and one where we have a national legislature as well is incredibly difficult. And because we haven't had a political process working through this issue for 50, 60 years, it's going to be really, really rough. And I think that's our future there. The reason why I characterize the election of 2020 as an issues one is around this time, three years ago, August uh, 13th of 2020, there was a, a Pew Research Center poll that showed that the economy uh, was a top concern for 79% of the electorate. Then healthcare, 68%, Supreme Court appointments. Of course, we had the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, and the Supreme Court fast track nomination process of Amy Coney Barrett. And then the coronavirus outbreak polling at 62%. Um, these issues, of course, you know, I think I, I, I can only see now abortion taking one of those top positions now that we're going to be having the first presidential election since 1972 in which Roe versus Wade was not the law of the land. And, and we've seen since 2020 enthusiasm that has not wavered, whether you go back to 2022 and the midterm cycle, whether you look at Kansas's vote on the issue, whether you look at this past Tuesdays, it seems like enthusiasm and, and the motivation that this issue generates uh, among the electorate has not died down yet. Nationally speaking, I'm kind of with Eric in that Biden and Trump, the narrative, the media narrative will not be as much about abortion as, as we might think right now, although Biden might try to tie himself to abortion because of various ballot initiatives taking place in other swing states in order to protect the right further. Locally, though, I think it's a different story and it's closer to Josh's perspective of we don't really know yet. Um, if this were next year, I would say Sherrod Brown would be jumping up and down for joy because he's facing a you know bruising re-election campaign in a state that he is far, far probably far, far too progressive for. But you know, having something like abortion that, to help him off, you know, at the top of the ticket would be much more helpful than the fact that he's going to be up against Trump and someone Trump likes. For what it's worth, I still think Sherrod Brown will do okay. Um, he's just the, uh, the kind of guy that Ohioans really like. But for his own re-election, the stakes are much different because this is a little further removed. Yeah, I, I, I guess for whatever it's worth, I, I, I tend to agree with, with Eric and Nate and Josh too, I guess. That I, I think it's a little early, and, and I'm not sure it's ever going to boil down to an issues contest if, if Trump and Biden are the, the nominees, which, which seems likely. Uh, I think historically, and you know, now I'm going to be the old guy on the porch, um, presidential elections have been personality contests. They've been, they've been glorified high school, school president contests. Who, who do you like? 
and the issues sort of pale. The issues are always talked about, but but it really comes down to, do I like this guy more than I like that guy? And uh, and I think this is going to be that again. And 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 yes, um, a lot of what the more extreme positions on the right articulate turn on this abortion issue and animating the notion that small d democracy is being taken away because we want to have a smaller group of people with the gerrymandering making the decisions as opposed to a, a larger group of people. And, and so sure, we're going to talk about that. But I think it's kind of early to focus on this as an issues contest. I think that, um, uh, and, and I do agree with Eric, and Eric may, may be surprised to find out that, that, that I'm a pro-life guy too, except I think Roe was the right decision. Um, because I think you're absolutely right. People are really sort of focused on that first trimester and the second trimester, they get a little less cool and the third trimester, they're really squeamish. And, and I agree with that. Uh, I think that's the way most people, well, a, a great majority of the people feel. And, um, but that means uh, uh, that citizens have to participate in their democracy. We got very comfortable uh, in on both the left and the right in relying on the court as the final arbiter of decisions, right, wrong, or indifferent, until people began to realize that you could shape the court through the legislative process, through the electoral process. I've said this in my class, and these two guys may have heard it. If you had put Brown versus Board of Education to a referendum in 1954, it would have lost. It took the Supreme Court to tell people this is what the law is, and people hated it in large part. There's no question about that. But people slowly but surely came to accept it as the law of the land, if you will, as much as I hated it and as much as I resisted it, but it was the law. But that animated a lot of reaction on the part of people who hated it to get control of the courts, plural, because they were doing stuff that people didn't like. And if you decide who gets to be the judges, then you control a lot of those decisions that you don't like. So, so I, think, I think that's part of it, but I think it's, it's, it's Joe and Donald Trump. It's a contest, it's a death match. It's a steel cage death match. <laughs> We're gonna be duking it out and people are gonna be on team Joe or team Don and we'll figure it out in uh, the day uh, on, on, on election day, who, who, who walks out victorious. How did proponents and opponents frame their respective stances you know, as we're talking about this issue, on the threshold increase? And, and, and what impact uh, could it have had on the democratic process, in your view? I think it's a little early to talk about turnout in 2024, because we don't know, you know, what's going to happen yet. Uh, four years ago at this time, in late 2019, we were all thinking one of Trump's scandals was going to be the big issue of the, of the campaign. We had no idea that a little pandemic was going to take over the world. And become the major issue instead. So we don't know yet what kind of uh, problems, crises, or panics might come to shake up the race as you know these things usually happen. As far as framing uh, the vote overall, proponents tended to either be hide it behind academic language as a language about, you know, making it making it so that, uh, making it a little more ordered to alter foundational documents. And then, you know, behind closed doors being a little more frank, you had people like Secretary of State Frank LaRose, who, do, who does happen to be running for Senate, say, yeah, this is about abortion. You had groups like Susan B. Anthony List 
pouring lots of money into the race on the yes side and you had a bunch of pro-choice advocacy groups, excuse me, pouring a bunch of money on the no side because really everyone was able to see kind of through what everyone was saying and see what they were not. I don't, look, I'm not an Ohio, I don't know to what extent that's true, but it probably was. There was probably, um, it's probably not an accident that they were trying to push through these reforms at this moment, right? And I am pro-life, but I would much prefer we work this out through a democratic deliberative process where we're operating in good faith and not try to do this sneaky behind, you know, behind closed doors. As I mentioned earlier, what little I know about Ohio, I do wish this uh, reform had passed because I I think it's kind of nuts that a 50% can alter the constitution, but this isn't the way to go about it, right? These are, and we see way too much of this in our politics. And I think this is, um, and I don't want to both sides is it, but it's, it's, it's not just the left or right. It's, it's, we don't operate in good faith. We don't present arguments and trust that the voters are going to make a good decision. And if they don't go the way we want them to go, you know what? That's how democracy works. We need, we'll make our argument the next time. We just don't do that anymore. And, and it's, I, I think the American people in general have a good barometer for detecting that sort of insincerity. And in the long run, it's hurting all of us. I'll just briefly make this point. There's a friend of mine who always says that for, uh, for everything that we do, that we have uh, the good reason and the real reason. And the good reason for this uh, raising the threshold was exactly, I think, what Josh and I have articulated and why we would be in favor of it, because I think we both believe that uh, having a higher bar for changing the constitution of a state is a good idea. But I don't think there's any denying that the real reason behind it was because of the abortion issue. Um, And there's a problem in politics when you're doing that kind of bait and switch. And I don't think that voters took to that um, very kindly. The result certainly seems to indicate that. And when you add on top of that, that I think I think most voters tend to default to no on these kinds of questions. Do you want to change things? And most people generally say, no, I don't. Um, I I think it was very poorly formulated for the pro-life side if that was the agenda. But again, I I back up to if we're just looking at the issue in the abstract, I'm in favor of the ballot proposition, whatever the motivations behind it would have been. Yeah, I I think you're right. But but it's a dynamic process. And, you know, the uh, Republicans who who, who supported this, proposed this, had ignored repeatedly the Ohio Supreme Court. And people, again, saw that this was a bait and switch. This was just a subterfuge to get where the court told them they couldn't be. And and, and that was a, a big problem for them in terms of packaging. Um, and, and and so I, I you know, I, I don't disagree with you. I mean, I think that in the abstract, yeah, let's let's talk about having a a more serious, uh, a, a higher level of, of, of uh, effort to change a foundational document. But when it is so transparent, as many of the so-called extreme people in the legislators in the country, when, when it's so clear that what they're really doing, as you just said, it, it the reason they give you is not the real reason. And you can see the real reason and you don't like it because it looks like fraud. Why, why don't they match? Why don't the real reason and the stated reason match? I mean, I think we don't have to go any further than how Mike initially uh, asked this question. He asked about the uh, referendum on abortion, not the referendum on changing the, uh, and that, that's how many people saw it. And that's basically what everyone understood this was, whether or not it was packaged differently. It was understood that this was, you know, basically stage one referendum on uh, abortion rights in the state of Ohio. Um, 
incidentally, I, I would like to throw out here as well that I think we might be confusing a lot of people. I am also personally pro-life, uh, although uh, I don't believe that my personal pro-life uh, uh, beliefs have anything to do with anyone else. So uh, that's that's where I come from it. But uh, interesting to know that we seem to be a, a pretty pretty straight pro-life panel personally tonight. <laughs> so former President Donald J. Trump could soon be strapped with an order limiting him in speaking publicly about the federal charges he's currently facing. That, of course, is not going to stop him from using his legal troubles to galvanize voters on the campaign trail. Uh, he said, I will talk about it. I will. They're not going to take away my First Amendment rights. He said that this past Tuesday about his latest federal indictment pertaining to his role in the effort to overthrow the 2020 presidential election results. And of course, this riled up a crowd at a campaign rally in Windham, New Hampshire, one of the early battleground states. A court-ordered muzzle, of course, could be imminent for Trump after the current GOP frontrunner appeared to declare that he's coming after those he views as responsible for his myriad legal challenges. Prosecutors brought the comments to a judge's attention last week, calling for Trump to be ordered to keep any evidence prosecutors turn over to his defense team away from public view. But Trump said Tuesday that he didn't care, calling the charges against him BS and accusing President Joe Biden of weaponizing the Justice Department to take out a political rival. He said they don't want me to speak about a rigged election. They don't want me to speak about it, whereas I have freedom of speech, First Amendment. Now, Trump claimed that they're forcing him nevertheless to spend time and money away from the campaign trial in order to fight bogus made up accusations and charges. I do want to pivot to this topic, panelists. How does Trump's language, like weaponizing as it pertains to illustrating what the Justice Department is doing to him in his view, how does that either hurt or potentially help him in his political standing? Now, we have seen, although he is still the dominant front runner, he is slipping a little bit in, in the Iowa polls and Chris Christie is gaining in New Hampshire. You have Tim Scott gaining in Iowa. Do those polls have any bearing on these potential legal problems that Trump has? They're going to try to get Donald Trump to stop talking so much. Good luck with that. Um, a lot of people have been trying that for quite a while, and he seems very immune to all of it. I, I would commend to people the um, uh, the Advisory Opinions podcast from The Dispatch, which is uh, David French and Sarah Isger, with a really good analysis of this in the last episode. And, and Sarah made a very interesting point about one of the problems that's going to exist here, which is if you're the attorney for Donald Trump, first of all, go buy a bottle of bourbon. Secondly, you want your client to help prepare for his defense. Um, so you now find yourself, if this order comes through, in the position of having this problem where if you tell him the things that are returned in terms of discovery, um, then he can help you prepare for the defense. But he's just as likely to go out on the campaign trail and start talking about all of it against the order. Uh, you're going to have a hard time getting out of that fix. I don't really know how you do that. Um, but here's the point where I just pivot to uh, kind of my overarching point on all of this, that, yes, this is very uncharted territory. Certainly, we have never had to deal with the possibility of any kind of a gag order when it is the former president of the United States and the front runner for the nomination of one of the political parties for president of the United States, which makes everything different. And this is where I will lay everything at the feet of Congress that failed to do its job, that should have impeached and should have removed him from office and should have barred him from running again. We would not be having any of these problems right now if Congress would have done 
done what I think most people knew that they should have done. But Congress doesn't work. It doesn't function the way that it is supposed to. And impeachment and re removal is basically a dead letter at this point in time. I don't know how you fix that. But until Congress is going to start being a jealous guardian of its own power again, we are going to continue to have these kinds of problems. You know, that's an excellent point. I have to unpack that. Tell us how you really feel. <laughs> I agree. I, I, I've always said a lot of Republicans made their speeches on the night of when the effects were still fresh, when the chaos was still rampant in their offices. And then they yeah, went around the on the wall, gave them a pass. And, yeah, and but, but they didn't. But, but, but they weren't doing their job when they made those speeches on the evening of January 6th. Their job was during the impeachment trial. That's when they had to do work. That, that PR piece was nothing. That's my point. That, that's exactly my point. I mean, when it, when, when it mattered, they failed, basically. And, and now they're trying to make it seem as if this is a partisan issue. You, know, you have Republican donors trying to you know, come together and see, well, DeSantis is flailing, so let's run the Tim Scott. I mean, all of this, you know, to your point, uh, Mr. Cohn, was avoidable. Think about And in my view, they would have been able to cast blame more on the Democrats who had the majority in the Senate, even though it was by a very, very slim margin. They would have said, well, the Democrats started the proceeding, on the House, and 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 then of course, you know, in the in the Senate, they convicted him. But they could have placed blame, to me, on the Democratic Party from for starting the proceeding, and then they could have washed their hands clean of him and moved on to someone like a DeSantis or a Tim Scott or whoever else they they deem fit to be their standard bearer. Iowa had Trump at sixty-seven percent. This is between August first and seventh, the first week in August, sixty-seven percent to Pence twenty percent, Trump fifty-four percent to Ramaswamy. Uh, 28 percent. And you look at DeSantis, 48 percent to 35 percent. That 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 gap between the two of them has been narrowed in that state. You look at New Hampshire. Trump's currently at 34 percent. DeSantis at 13 percent. Christie at 11 percent. Christie has leaped to third place. And, you know, you, you, there is, you know, evidence slipping uh, in, in terms of Trump's standing where he was running away with 20 plus points ahead of his nearest challenger. Now that gap has decreased. So. But, but but Mike, I I the challenge I have with what you laid out, which I, I have no disagreement substantively, I think those numbers are what the numbers are, but it, but it, but it keeps us in this contest, in the horse race contest. Donald Trump is clearly, totally, completely unqualified to be president of the United States. And people need to think about what a disaster this human is vis-a-vis -vis the office of being the chief executive officer of the government of the, of the, of the United States. And as long as it kind of is, well, he's doing okay. I, I just think we have to get back to that. I, I, I think that the judicial system is going to have to do its job a little bit more rigorously than the legislative body did its job. Donald Trump is facing two challenges with Judge Chutkin. One, a very typical order on discovery where the judge expects the defendant not to talk about the items produced in discovery be, beyond conversing with his or her attorneys. That is the norm. The second is the gag order. Having a defendant not going outside of the court, poisoning the jury pool by making statements that are not true, that are exaggerated, that are irrelevant. Those are two different but related things. The challenge at the end of the day for this judge 
is that in most cases where, where, where defendants refuse to comply with those orders, you can jail them, the threat of jail to purge them from that non-compliance. It's almost impossible to imprison Donald J. Trump because federal law provides him with Secret Service protection. Until that statute is changed, he has that. You cannot send a Secret Service agent with a firearm into a correctional institution. It just ain't going to work. Now, can you put, can, can the Department of, can the Bureau of Prisons buy a small three-bedroom apartment and tell Donald Trump you have to go there and stay in there with the agents? Maybe you could. But the challenge is still is coercing compliance. Most defendants are, are coerced by the power of the courts, by the power of the court to imprison them. And this guy has basically demonstrated he's not going to be coerced that way. So this is going to be a real challenge for Judge Shutkin and the Court of Appeals to figure out how to police this guy. Because what is being asked for in terms of the discovery rule is absolutely normal, is totally vanilla. And his resistance to compliance is going to be a problem. And you're right. His lawyer needs to be drinking brown liquor all day, every day, because this is going to be awful for him. But but then if he goes out and says things like he said the other day about Fonnie Willis, you know, having an affair with a, with a gangbanger based on no evidence whatsoever, uh, how can you control a guy who is willing to just keep saying that and daring you to lock him up? And I think it goes beyond, though, the practical challenges of trying to coerce Donald Trump into uh, something like a gag order. <clears throat> because, Mike, I'm... I, I'm not so certain that additional legal efforts against Donald Trump will do anything but bolster his polls. We don't know long term. Maybe that'll, you know, we mentioned he's slipping in the polls. That may be. Um, I think he even made that statement prior to saying that basically it was his first memorite. He was he was going to speak. You no, know, he said something to the effect of one more indictment, and that'll be the end of this election. Um, I'm not sure I didn't see the full context, but I'm assuming what he meant is if they try this again, I'm sure enough going to be president. I don't know that that's true, but that certainly seems to be helping him. Most of what's, and, and I obviously we don't pursue justice on the basis of whether or not it would help or hurt a political opponent. But the reason I'm, I'm saying that, <clears throat> and one of the challenges of having Eric and, and I on the same panels, I think we both pull from a lot of the same resources. I do recommend uh, David French and Sarah Isger's podcast. Um, that being said, if you don't have time for podcasts or don't care to listen to one, you could also go to the Dispatch's new newsletter, The Collusion, with Sarah Isger and Michael Warren, uh, for those who can't stand David French, um, where it's much of the same thing. They talk about this in excruciating legal detail. I'm not an attorney. Um, and, and I think one of the temptations sometimes is while it is fruitful to have this conversation is that the reality is no one on this panel and presumably no one listening to us is in any way going to be making any of these decisions from a legal standpoint. However, we are all going to be making a decision from a political standpoint. And the real question for us and for most Americans is, as Fred mentioned earlier, is Donald Trump qualified to be president of the United States? Um, I don't know that we have any sleeper Trump supporters on this panel, <laughs> uh, nor in the audience, but I, but I think that is the real question because I, I think that the problem is we get into this tap for tat of whether or not something's legal or not. Does Donald Trump have a First Amendment right to say something? And really, this co country needs to be having a conversation. Should he be saying that? Who cares if it's legal? 
should he be saying? Is, is this proper behavior for the potential leader of the free world? Trump has a pretty big lead. He has a pretty massive pad to kind of cushion him between the person and his rearview mirror. New Hampshire specifically, he won there in 2016 with only about 35% of the vote, if I remember correctly. And so, you know, dropping from, say, saying 52 to 48 is not so big of a thing. You can attribute that to a polling error. Trump's legal issues do not seem to hurt him as far as it applies to his base, especially when you consider how much of his base views him. Remember that there is literally a cult of personality that believes that Trump is the appointed savior to save all of us from the Democrats and Hollywood and the baby eaters and all of that. And so every, all the pushback that you see against him is, you know, the powerful insiders trying to uh, make sure that they hold their power on society. So whenever he gets, you know, whenever he faces any sort of legal recourse, that's what it is. Now, as it relates to uh, the general election, that's a completely different question. And it is certainly true that Republicans should have ditched Trump at, you know, 3.30 p.m. on January 6th. And various Republican insiders are well aware of the fact that he's a liability for them. He's so far cost them the White House. He cost them the House of Representatives. He cost them the Senate. He cost them a red wave. If Can you imagine? Uh, look, I don't have a crystal ball. I don't have a time machine. But I personally believe that the 2022 midterms would have been completely different had Trump not become an issue right before the uh, ballots were cast because that completely shifted the dynamic of the race. And many people criticized Joe Biden for focusing on January 6th and the MAGA movement and democracy, but it turned out to work because it, he picked up a Senate seat and managed to stem what was expected to be, you know, by a lot of people, an absolute electoral washout. Now, as it relates to his gag order that he should, would, or rather would normally be expected to face if he were a normal criminal defendant, He's free to, you know, contest it before a judge. He is also free, if he really wants to talk about the case that badly, to uh, agree with what the Justice Department is seeking as it relates to the scheduling of the trial, which is January 2nd. That's only, you know, three and a half months away. It's not such a long time. Professor Cook alluded to a little bit earlier, but under increasing threat of a fourth criminal indictment that could come any day out of the state of Georgia and Fulton County, former President Donald Trump lashed out at District Attorney Fonnie Willis uh, with bizarre and baseless accusations. He did this on stage at a campaign rally in Wyndham, New Hampshire. He accused Willis of having a, a, an affair with a defendant. She's prosecuting her case against the alleged Atlanta-based gang. YSL Young Slime Life is already the longest in state history and is still ongoing in Fulton County. He was making these accusations that she was involved with this defendant. And while we're talking about Trump attacking this, this female African-American prosecutor, you have DeSantis also attacking <laughs> uh, African-American prosecutor by preventing, you know, the will of the people from being carried forward by preventing state attorney Monique Worrell from taking office after she was duly elected by the people. Two candidates looking for the Republican nomination, two candidates that have made it their mission to target these two black women prosecutors and to do whatever they could to undermine their authority. And I think it's noteworthy that both of them are reading from the same political playbook. And DeSantis still, you know, for the most part, even though his position as second place is, is still very fluid, is still enjoying some support from, from those who want a Trump-like candidate. What are your thoughts about that? Well, as much as for Trump, uh, his legal issues, 
you know, keep him in the newspaper, which is what he really likes. Trump loves attention above everything else. It also helps his campaign in the sense that most of the overwhelming majority of the money that Trump raises, and he does a very good job of raising money, it goes to paying his lawyers and paying his campaign staff. It doesn't actually go to, you know, actual campaigning. And considering the amount of legal trouble that he's in, Trump needs to pay his lawyers. And he also needs to keep up a functioning campaign staff. The Trump staff that we see today is not the Trump staff of 2016 or even 2020. They're far sharper. They're far more disciplined, which is how they've managed to change uh, primary rules across the country. It's how they've managed to stay so far ahead. It's how they've managed to create inroads with every state party in order to keep themselves, you know, as comfortably in the poll position as possible. As it relates to DeSantis, you know, being Trump light has not so far proven to be a winning strategy yet because the full calorie version is right there and still available. But, you know, he's gambling on a Trump fall or at the very least someone jumping at Trump or something jumping at Trump before he has to take the first swing, which I think all the candidates with the exception of Asa Hutchinson, Chris Christie and Will Hurd recognize someone's got to swing at Trump in order for one of them to get the nomination and they just don't want it to be, you know, the rest of them. But, you know, when you are a Ron DeSantis who has been gunning for the presidency since he was sworn in as governor of Florida and since he got, you know, all that glowing news coverage of him being, you know, an anti-COVID crusader and a true conservative, you know, knight and standout, pushing the limits is kind of a really good way to see what you can do, what people will put up with you as a candidate and how people will put up you what will put up with you as someone who governs. And so, you know, I don't, I don't know what to expect with his, uh, you know, attack on the state attorney. The last time he tried it, the courts said that he didn't really have the authority to do it, but also that they could not order him to reinstate the previous state attorney he tried this on. So it's going to be a pretty interesting dynamic, especially in the context of a presidential campaign. Yeah, I would just add in the comparison of, of what Trump was doing in talking about the uh, believed to be forthcoming indictment out of Fulton County and what Ron DeSantis is doing here. The difference is, I think, a significant one in that, um, yes, there's at least a colorable, I think, legal argument that DeSantis can do what he is doing. What Trump is doing in that case is just pure Trumpian bluster and making things up and making accusations that have no basis in reality whatsoever. Um, the, you can have a disagreement about your views on uh, this prosecutor in Florida if she is too lenient, um, if in the opinion of uh, the governor that she is not doing her job properly, and there will be uh, a court of law to uh, adjudicate what DeSantis has tried to do. I don't think they are that comparable. So I, I don't know that I would put the two of them together in that sense. Uh, if we want to get into the politics of it, yeah, the DeSantis campaign has certainly been a disappointment. As it turns out, if you're going to try, if there's a guy in front of you in a race and you're never going to really talk about him, it's going to be really hard to overtake that guy. Like I learned that running campaigns 18 years ago and how it is, it is utterly amazing to me how for the last seven years, people think that the normal rules of politics have thoroughly been suspended. People pretend like they are, but in a lot of, in some ways they were like Donald Trump did a lot of things that would have ended political campaigns for uh, mere mortals. Like the first campaign that I was involved in in Illinois was a guy named Jack Ryan, who was running for the United States Senate. 
who dropped out of the race because of a sex scandal that A, didn't involve any sex, and B, was with the guy's wife. Uh, how far we have come in terms of the kinds of things that we are willing to countenance or not countenance. But I don't think the general rule of if there's a guy ahead of you, you go after him. And DeSantis seems unwilling to do that. Now, maybe he's pivoting. Maybe he's going to do that. They shed a lot of staff. They've hired new campaign managers. We will have to see. But going back to the the impetus of this point of the conversation, I don't think the two uh, issues are comparable beyond the fact that they involve presidential candidates and prosecutors. Well, I compared them because both the men are intentionally casting doubt on the legitimate authority that both of these women hold. I think Trump is casting doubt on you know her by saying that she's a political partisan who is corrupt. And if I can paint her as just as dirty as I am or someone who has a political agenda, who's using the indictment to, as a stepping stone for another position, then it casts doubt on the legitimacy of the entire process. In terms of DeSantis, if he can prevent the election and the swearing in of this woman who was duly elected by the people and say somehow she runs again for her position and wins, there's always going to be a cloud of doubt over her legitimacy. Both of those men know what they're doing in terms of trying to undermine their opponent by casting enough doubt around them so that people have less faith in the, the, the judicial process and, and the rule of law, and in specifically these two women and the authority that they would wield. I agree with that to, to a significant degree in terms of his DeSantis's desire to undermine the legitimacy uh, of, of a, an elected official. And, and Trump attempts to undermine the legitimacy of, of, of elected officials of government processes generally. I, I think, you know, but, but the larger issue for DeSantis is this consistent argument he makes about wokeness, this, this thing that he continually complains is a bane on the existence of Americans, black or white. But it's sort of a coded message to the white community. And, and, and so one of the things that seems to me that has been demonstrated to be true over the time of Trump since 2015, I guess, is that that sort of worldview is not a winner. It, it doesn't really win. What it does is it creates a lot of dust and, 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 and it, 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 it sounds a bell for a lot of people who, who, who agree with it, but that, that group's not the majority. What the Democrats have failed to do, and, and since we're running this A-B contest, is that, that they have played into that with wacko candidates that make it easy to attract other people who dislike those candidates to the group of people who believe that this wokeness thing or this government swamp or this, this horrible government thing, and they coalesce to create a majority. But when you can separate the two, when you can create a candidate who speaks real English and talk to people straight ahead, they have trouble cobbling together a majority uh, because the, 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 the characters who are articulating this are so unlikable. One of DeSantis' biggest problems is that he is just a not likable human being. People don't gravitate toward him. And Donald Trump has become a not likable people person for a lot of people for a lot of reasons. And it's hard to get across the finish line when you just don't have people like you and you're saying things that really don't resonate with a majority of the public. They, re they resonate with a hardcore group, but they don't resonate with the majority and it's hard to win. And it, as long as Joe Biden doesn't do too much crazy stuff, 
I think he can still win this, you know, election against Donald Trump. But but he, but the Democrats have demonstrated time again an absolute ability to give it back, to give whatever advantage they have back. So before we conclude, GOP presidential candidate Nikki Haley criticized Senator Tommy Tuberville of Alabama's month-long hold on military promotions this past Tuesday. She questioned whether it represents a distressing low point in the nation's commitment to its armed forces. She said, this just goes to show how messed up our country is. And she told it to Hewitt. Uh, she said, I mean, you look at the fact that the Department of Defense shouldn't be doing this in the first place, but there's got to be other ways to go about doing this. I appreciate what Tuberville's trying to do. I do. Like, it's totally wrong that the Department of Defense is doing this. But have we gotten so low? This is how we have to go about stopping it. Haley, of course, is a former UN ambassador under in the Trump administration. And she did not explicitly call for the Senator Tuberville to lift his blockade. She focused her criticism on the Department of Defense and their handling of promotions and implementation of the Pentagon policy that pays travel expenses and offers leave to service members seeking an abortion. She said, you're dealing with a Department of Defense that's not focused on making sure that our military has the equipment, ammunition up to date that they need. Indeed, uh, she says, they want them taking gender pronoun classes. She said, we've got a serious problem when you've got China threatening us Russia threatening us, Iran threatening us, and we're going to sit there and play games like this. Now, of course, this is all, you know, the after effect of a, a larger showdown between Biden and Tuberville, in which Tuberville pushed Biden's hand to decide to put the U.S. Space Command or keep the U.S. Space Command headquarters in the state of Colorado instead of allowing it to be in Huntsville, Alabama. And of course, this overturned a last-ditch decision by the Trump administration to move it to Alabama. And the choice ended months of thorny deliberations. And of course, you have you know, a lot of the Alabama delegation upset about it. You have Representative Mike Rogers saying that this fight is far from over. And he's, of course, the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee. Well, it's like what we said earlier. Nikki Haley needs someone to jump on, and she's not going to jump on Trump because part of her still wants to be vice president or secretary of state, and attacking Trump is not the way to do that. Um, so she's picking an easy target because Tuberville has already gotten criticism from some in his own party. Look, you can disagree with military policy, but the fact of the matter is that there are branches of the military that don't have Senate-confirmed leaders right now. And if you really care about national security, if you really care about military preparedness, then you need the branches of the military to have their own leadership. And we don't have that right now. Um, and that's whether you are you know, pro-military or anti-military, pro-war or anti-war. You still want your country's fighting force to have actual leadership, uh, which is not which Tuberville has ensured, which the gentleman from Florida has ensured that we don't actually have. And before any of you found out, Tommy Tuberville lives in Florida and has lived there since 2017. But um, he, so, and it does take a personal tone for Nikki Haley because part of her campaign story and the narrative of the person that she's trying to build is that she is a military wife. And so, you know, had this been a few years earlier, had, you know, while her husband was still on active duty, his life would have been actively endangered by the fact that there is not leadership at the top of certain branches of the military. Uh, and you can make this about, you know, you know, Biden moving the space command, uh, or rather keeping the space command in Colorado. But even if you, but uh, that's been an under review for a while. And really it was, it makes sense, honestly, for the space command to be in a city like Huntsville where you know NASA is very actively involved, but it was originally placed in Colorado for a reason. And Trump moving it to Alabama in the first place was just rewarding, you know, his home base with 
you know, jo uh, the jobs and the economic growth that's associated with having a military base in your area. Now you can argue that the same thing uh, is going to happen in Colorado, which happens to be a blue state, and you would probably win that argument, but it's not as partisan as it looks. How does the differing stance on Tuberville's hold among GOP presidential candidates reflect their broader policy positions and priorities? This isn't a policy position. This is complete hogwash. Mitch McConnell could end this tomorrow by simply telling Tommy Tuberville, we're done with this. We're going to confirm these people. I'm voting with the Democrats to get this done because national security is more important than your pet peak. It's nonsense. And there is no policy involved of any real consequence. It, you know, Tuberville's notion is that if the military uses Department of Defense funds to pay for the travel of an active duty military person to a state where they can get an abortion from a state they cannot to a state that they can, then that's, an, that, that's, that, that's not a good public policy uh, utilization of, of, of monies of paid for the Department of Defense. But you can use the same argument, a bit more attenuated, to say, if I pay your salary, then you can't use the money I, that you got in your bank account to, to haul your butt to another jurisdiction. It's, it's really nonsensical. And, and, and I don't disrespect his view that abortion is wrong and he should do everything he can to keep abortion from happening. I, I, if that is his heartfelt belief, and I, I'm not going to question it, then that's fine. But there's a difference between your heartfelt belief and imposing it on active duty military people who may not share your belief and who are simply saying, you made me go to Alabama. I choose to get an abortion. I can't get it in Alabama. And the Department of Defense says, as a matter of military readiness, we will pay for you, we'll give you leave and pay for you to go to Minnesota, have your abortion and come back. That's what this is. And you can disagree with it, but I don't think you can basically decapitate the, hit, the, the leadership of the, of, the, of the military apparatus to force your decision. Put it up for a vote in the Senate, win or lose, and live to fight another day. Yeah, I just, uh, I just Googled and checked out, and it turns out Tommy Tuberville is a, a legislator. And if he wants to stop the uh, military from having a policy like this, I'm pretty sure he can introduce legislation that would stop them from having this kind of policy. That's right. um, this seems to be something that people get elected to these positions and have uh, amnesia and forget that they are legislators, like Cory Gardner during the Trump administration when uh, Sessions withdrew the uh, Obama-era letter that said uh, the federal government will not go after states that have legalized marijuana. And he just begged for Trump to have Sessions reinstate it when it's like, bro, you're a legislator. Introduce a bill. Let people vote on it. It's kind of like your job. Um, so I, I one way this feels very quaint, a battle over, you know, arcane Senate rules and how they're being utilized and where jobs and military bases are being placed. But this, again, gets back to my hobby horse of Congress doesn't do its job. And if Tommy Tuberville wants to stop this policy, introduce some legislation. Yeah, and I think this kind of harkens back to the beginning of our conversation about abortion policy and debate in this country is that, uh, and, and it's so much more than abortion, but that's certainly one area where we we have lost the ability to legislate, to argue well, to deliberate, to come to consensus. Um, and you see this just all over the place. I mean, spend 20 minutes on Twitter and you can see we're not in, a, in any fit condition to be 
having these debates, unfortunately. Uh, is Twitter like X? Is, I, think, oh, yeah, I think you mean X. Is that yeah. what it, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> My, <clears throat> I'm going to go see that. Hold on. <laughs> um, but I think that that's a... I don't want to just echo what everybody else has said here on this, this panel, but, but it is, it's, it's kind of disgusting. It's, it's Congress is not doing its job and the American people have lost the capacity to have debates. Yeah. They're messy and they're ugly. And, and we're obviously going to get these things wrong, maybe through process of time, this gets better. I don't know, but it, it sure is kind of pathetic. Well, let me, I just want to throw out something here is I think that this is, while I uh, highly disagree with it, I don't think it's a truly legitimate tactic. Uh, this is the kind of tactic that was legitimized just a few months ago, completely legitimized, when uh, a suicide bomb was attached to the national debt uh, and was used and was uh, turned into a completely legitimate uh, style of debate to get a an unpopular and unmandated uh, policy point through. If uh, all the power that's left is to threaten uh, Armageddon, uh, in order to get something you want done, uh, if that's the only thing you've got there, that might be where you, uh, how you decide to move about something. And uh, uh, Senator Tuberville obviously knows that he does not have the political force behind him to uh, get such a change uh, as he would like done. So he's going to use the uh, strategy he has for him, uh, has in front of him uh, by pointing a gun at the military, um, uh, Proving to actually be an, an excellent uh, colonial soldier taking out the uh, uh, the mm -hmm. officer corps to prevent the army from working. Uh, so, you know, good. He studies American history. He knows how we used to do things. Unfortunately, he's using it on our own forces. And what about Biden's decision to basically, you know, tell Tuberville, you, you, you're not going to be the one to determining the headquarters of this uh, facility. I am. I'm the president. I'm the commander in chief. I'm putting this in Colorado. Do you think that that was a wise move on the part of the president. How do you, I mean, depends on what you mean by wise. It probably should be in Colorado moving things around, especially when they do, uh, when they, you know, re uh, revolve around the military, not a great idea that throws future, uh, further confusion into things. Was it the most politically expedient thing to do? Did it uh, run the risk of uh, pissing off Senator uh, Tuberville and leading to this exact thing? Yeah. Uh, did it, Need to be moved to Alabama? No. Should it have been moved to Alabama? Probably not. You know, he's, he's stuck in a rock and a hard place when there's a guy who's there who's just going to throw a temper tantrum and try to hold up uh, everything because he didn't get his way. Yeah, old guy alert. Uh, it's in Colorado because it used to be the headquarters of, still is headquarters of NORAD. And they put it inside of a mountain to protect it from those dreaded Russian nuclear missiles. And that's why it was there. And then it evolved to the headquarters of the Space Command when Trump created the Space Command. Does it need to be in Colorado? Not really. Uh, not anymore, because NORAD is going to stay in Colorado. I mean, it it has it, it happened to be where where what they called what what the predecessor to the to the Space Command happened to be housed there. But could they move it to 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 to, to Alabama? Sure. It, it wouldn't disrupt. It wouldn't make the, 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 the United States military apparatus any more vulnerable. It's going to be expensive. And the question gets to be, why do you want to incur that expense? You've got a, you've got a functioning headquarters in place X. Why move it to place Y just to satisfy a political deal that Donald Trump made to his supporters on the way out the door? That's not a good way to make policy either. Uh, so it, it, it's it's it, it, it's. It is kind of what it is. I think that, yeah, the president gets to make that decision. 
not a member of the legislature, unless, as Eric said, unless you do your thing and pass a little law and create a piece of legislation that says this is where it's going to be. They could do that. He doesn't have the votes to do that. So he's doing this extortion. And it's been done since the beginning of the Republic by members of the Senate. And, and he's just another in a long line of doing this. But, you know, I, I just think it's nonsense. But, you know, I'm not a senator. Maybe I wouldn't think it was nonsense if I was. I feel compelled to add that uh, while Tommy Tuberville uh, has managed to stop all of these promotions, if you were only able to stop college football offenses so effectively, maybe he would still be coaching. <laughs> you know, a Reagan advisor once described Ronald Reagan as a big fluffy cloud, but when you punch it, there's a steel bar in the middle. I think that adequately could be applied to Biden in this case. I think, you know, this move was more of a political move. It was basically, you know, you're not going to bully the, the commander chief. Um, you know, I'm not going to be deterred by political calendars. I'm not going to be deterred by tenter, temper tantrums uh, or, or, you know, nomination holdups or anything like that. And I think, you know, it was a wise move. I mean, it, it let folks know up front, you know, what your red line is, what your bottom line is and what you're not willing to cross and how far they could push you. And I think Biden let Tuberville know his red line. Uh, I mean, any last thoughts before we conclude tonight's program? I enjoyed this. I like meeting Eric. I did not meet him before. And I met Josh before, and he's really pretty cool. I like that. I appreciate it. It's been fun. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Definitely enjoyed it. I do hope that, as I said uh, once when I was on here, maybe next time we won't be in so much violent agreement on everything. Um, but it, but definitely enjoy speaking with you guys. And I didn't mean to leave you out, Nate. Good to see you again. <laughs> Professor Cook, it's always a privilege and honor to have you on. Uh, Eric, this was a treat. Thank you for being on the, the program tonight. Thanks for having me. Uh, Josh, Thank you, Josh. Always a pleasure and honor to have your perspective represented. Zach, uh, this was a wonderful panel, and I, and I hope to have each of you, especially you, Eric, uh, back on again soon. With that being said, that would conclude episode 114 of the Political Mike podcast. Thank you all for tuning in. Hi, it's Mike Taylor, the host of the Political Mike podcast. If you like what you heard tonight, I want to invite you to subscribe to our YouTube channel. I also want to ask you to please follow along on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, and Amazon Music. You can also follow along and keep up with the conversation through our Telegram channel. Follow us on Twitter at, at ThePolyMike, and follow us on Instagram. Thank you so much, and no matter what part of the political spectrum that you fall on, I want to encourage you to stay engaged, stay a part of the conversation, and stay informed. Thank you.